Take your Bibles, Luke chapter 2. So I'll give you a scary thought as we begin this morning. I want to peel back the covers a little bit and let you know the kind of thoughts that go through your pastor's head. And uh, so this week, I found myself in a situation. I was in Beaumont, and uh, I started contemplating time travel. So I don't know what you think about time uh, travel, but uh, I wasn't a big supporter of the idea until I found myself in this situation. And I feel relatively sure that Charles Dickens, for his inspiration of A Christmas Carol, and especially for the inspiration for his character named Scrooge. Y'all remember Scrooge? Um, Pretty sure that he, in preparing to write that, time traveled forward to 2016 at Christmas on Dallin Street near the mall sitting in traffic. Because Scrooge was in every vehicle around us, Teresa and I found ourselves there stuck in traffic at a time of day. There should not have been any traffic, but after all, it is Beaumont, and it is Dallin Street, and it is Christmas season. And uh, some guy uh, was, well, you know, people are eating up with patience this time of the year. They're just understanding and peace, like we talked about last last week, and goodwill towards men and all of that stuff. And some poor guy in a car next to us was really slow off of the jump when the light changed. Now, what I mean slow off the jump, first of all, we're three or four cars from the light, and so he was at the mercy of the car in front of him, but I, I, I suppose the guy that honked at him from behind uh, gave him every bit of a quarter of a second after the light turned before he jumped on the horn. Uh, and I was looking around, I was thinking through, and I, you know, this time of the year, I was just saying, you know, there's a lot of Scrooges around here. And so maybe time travel is a possibility. Maybe Dickens just flash-forwarded to our time to do that. Maybe the better question is, are you Scrooge? Okay, no answer to that. So let's see if I can help you answer that today. We're in our series, our Christmas series, which actually is kind of a small slice of the bigger series that we're in in the book of Acts where we're emphasizing what we find in Scripture, where the Holy Spirit engages us as Christians and charges us with engaging people with the good news of Jesus Christ, sharing life. And so at Christmas time, the, the, the overarching question for the three Christmas sermons that I have for you, today's the second one, two weeks from today on Christmas Day itself was when we'll do the third one. Uh, but the overarching question is this one. What difference does Christmas make? Now, we would all be quick. I I hope that we would all be quick to jump to the facts of Christmas that we love to hold on to and even fight about with people who kind of threaten that a little bit. Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, we say that in an attacking way most of the time. But we, we do that because we know that there is a possibility that the facts of Christmas could be under attack. And so we quickly run to the facts that we know are true Jesus, the very Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, sacrificed, died on a cross, buried, resurrected, so that we might have a repaired relationship with God and our sin penalty paid. Those are the facts. That's what difference Christmas makes. 
But when it comes to our practical everyday life, if we're not careful, we settle into a Christian culture or a Christian subculture where we acknowledge the facts, but in the overall scheme of things, Christmas doesn't make that much of a difference to us. And so when the Christmas season is over, we quickly roll into New Year's, and then we quickly roll into Valentine's Day, and then we quickly roll into eventually Easter. We live holiday to holiday. What difference does Christmas make for us? And so I have three wishes for you, for us, on my Christmas wish list. And the, last one, or the first one we looked at last week, which was peace. We looked at that passage from Isaiah, that prophecy that said that there would be this one, a Messiah who would be born, and he would be called, among other things, the Prince of Peace. And so we wish peace for you. Today I want to take you to a different one, and it's found actually in this passage in Luke. We come to the Christmas story, and I'll be here uh, exclusively in Luke chapter 2 when we get to Christmas Day and the message that we have there. But for today, I want to zero in on a single verse here. Before we go to the Luke one, I, I guess I should take you to Galatians, where we're ultimately going to see where this all ties in with our series And that is, as the Holy Spirit indwells us, he brings to us some divine characteristics that he then produces in us. Paul in Galatians 5 refers to that as the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit's presence in our lives. And so in Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and here's the one for the day, peace, excuse me, joy. Uh, flashback a week. Love, joy, and peace, and then he lists some other ones there. But I want to talk to you today about joy. I'm not so sure that this is one of the things that we get very well. And we'll see as we work our way through this, there are a number of different elements that we really kind of need to get a handle on. But let me, let me just begin by, by testing the waters about how joyous we are. Are you Scrooge? Oliver Wendell Holmes was a Supreme Court justice for some 30 years. During his time as a justice, he was compared to one of the greats of all time and was really kind of one of those guys that people looked to and wanted to be like, I guess, in the field of constitutional law and those kind of things. And at one point, somebody came to him and asked him what was the basis of his choice to be in law, and especially as a Supreme Court justice. And his answer is kind of intriguing for us. And if it's not careful, if we're not careful, then we own something here that we shouldn't necessarily want to own. Here's his response. Why did you choose to be in law and particularly as a Supreme Court justice? Here's what he said. I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen that I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Now, so we're picking on preachers now, all right? And that's okay. That's me. I don't mind doing that. Um, But have you known that preacher that he's talking about? You know the kind of preacher that looked like my, my dad used to call being baptized in pickle juice? You know, it's just like sour all the time. Just, you know, or they, they carry this persona about them. That persona that, that uh, takes seriously the self-imposed title of spokesman for God. 
You know the, you know the ones I'm talking about? You've, you've seen those kind of guys. Now, one of the greatest, if you want to really insult me, tell me that I'm that kind of guy. All right? But there are those preachers who, who carry that whole thing. You know, there's this, like, well, you know, they take the word God and they make it multiple syllables. God. That's the kind of person that he was talking about. I might have been a minister, but I knew guys who were more like undertakers who were ministers. It's easy to slip into a a joy-free expression in your life. And sometimes we do that wrapped in religion. And so the very thing that we're called to take out to people gets pushed away and pushed down and hidden underneath this veneer of something. Case in point, let's take it off the preachers and let's put it on you. A large mainline denomination, I won't tell you who it was, but this denomination was having a conference. And in their denomination, they were really serious about being really under control and, you know, don't show emotion in a church service. They certainly wouldn't have had any of the raising their hands and worshiping and, you know, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra never would have made it on their music playlist. And so they were having this conference and they were kind of up against this deal. They wanted somehow to help the people express themselves in worship uh, and what they hoped would be a joyous occasion for them. And so they, they knew they couldn't have the, you know, the speaking out, amen, they certainly wouldn't say that there and no raising their hands. And you know, so they decided this idea in their conference, true story. They, they filled up a bunch of balloons with helium. And they passed them out to people as they were coming into that conference session. And they gave them these instructions. When you feel like you're really worshiping and, and, and the joy of God is in you at that moment, just let your balloon go. And it will express silently but visually that God is doing something in your life. You realize that when that conference session was over, a third of the people in there still held on to their balloons. Why is it that so many Christian people seem to be without joy? You know the kind I'm talking about. It's, it's that person who walks around always with a frown, always with a quick attack, always seemingly void of any real life to draw people to. You got all the words right and do all the right things. It's just that there's no joy deep down. That should be contrasted with what we find in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And finally, we're there. I told you we would get there. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, and we know the Christmas story, and so I'm not going to bother reading the whole thing now, but I want to zero in on this one statement by the angels on the hillside as those shepherds are gathered around there. Verse 10, Luke chapter 2, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. What does that mean? And maybe a good thing to ask is, what does that look like? And maybe a better thing to ask is, why don't we see that among Christian people and churches in our day and age? 
Well, if that one's not enough for you, there's another passage that I want to get you to, actually two other ones. And these are in the book of John, and I have used these, uh, this passage as we've been working our way through this little mini-series because Jesus has said to his disciples, I'm going away. That's John 14, and they're beginning to get a little upset about that, and Jesus is explaining some things, and kind of one of those, not really the last thing he says to them, but that last big section of teaching that we have. And in the process, Jesus says, I'm going to go, but I'm going to send my spirit, and he will be here with you. And he will indwell you. So we get to Acts chapter 2 in our series. And the Holy Spirit shows up. And all of this stuff is happening. And so we come together with all of that. And now in Luke chapter 15, here's what Jesus says in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Now think about that. Now first of all, the disciples must have had some point of reference as to what Jesus is talking about. Because he says it in such a way that they would get it. My joy will be in you. And then it goes on to say, and that your joy may be full. Now, let me just, let's just take a moment and let you stop and kind of, I don't want you to look around in here. Okay, sometimes I say, I want you to just look around the room and let's see what's in. I don't want you to do that because I'm, I'm seeing some people out there that are taking this whole joy thing rather hard today. What are you talking about joy? We don't do no joy around here. Now, that may, need, may not be what you're thinking, but your face says that, some of you. So I don't want you to look around. I just want you to think through. Go, go back through your memory banks. How many Christian people do you know whose lives are marked by joy? I mean just flat-out joy. Either I'm missing a lot of that historically, Or Jesus can't deliver on what he promised. Or we need to work on this as Christians in the 21st century. Now, I'll just tell you, Jesus delivers on what he promises. So that option is out. I might be missing some things, but I fully believe that this whole idea of joy as it takes root in the life of a Christian is sadly lacking in Christian lives of our day. One of the reasons that the world is rejecting who we are as Christians. Some of that is they think we don't know how to have a good time. Or our idea of a good time is something that was good in the 50s and not today. So somewhere in all of that, we got to figure out where this is. Chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus says this. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And what I want you to get from all of this to this point of the message is this. Jesus promises that joy is part of the package in the Christian life. The Holy Spirit produces that. It's a fruit of the Spirit's presence in our life. So if we, you, me, us, or Christendom in general in this season, if all we have is Christmas songs that talk about joy, then somewhere we've missed the boat. And I don't believe that that's God's design for us. So let's take a couple of steps here and see. I I, want to take you to... um, a, a definition for joy. Because if we're going to talk about it and if we're going to try to settle into what this means, maybe we should kind of agree on what we're talking about. And I've found that joy is a little difficult to nail down, actually. Uh, part of that, my experience in traffic this week, m- multiple times in traffic this week, um, people around us are just not joyful as a rule. And so I started digging to see, okay, so what, how do we capture this? 
Merriam-Webster's online dictionary says, here's their first, their primary definition. It is an emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. So let me just start off by saying, I know that they're the experts on dictionaries and on definitions, but this one's wrong. All right? It's just wrong, in my opinion. But hey, I'm just like you. I qualify to have an opinion. So here's my deal with it. Joy is not an emotion. Now, here's what makes it hard to nail down. There is an emotional element to joy, but to reduce it simply to an emotion produces some problems for us. I'm not going to take the time right now, but if we went over to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 8, in the account of the immediate aftermath at the tomb where the two ladies had gone, Mary and Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb to see Jesus' body and to deal with that. And they're encountered an, an angel there. And the angel gives them the message, he's not here, he's risen. In chapter 28, verse 8 of Matthew, it says there, and they left with fear and full of joy. Now, unless I'm missing something, it's difficult to have those two emotions on top of each other. So joy is more than just an emotion. It has an emotional component to it, but it's more than just an emotion. Here's the second uh, uh, definition that Merriam-Webster gives us, a state of happiness. Now, that's closer, but I still have an issue with the happiness part of that because typically happiness for us is dependent on circumstances. Let's see if I can give you. You know, you know if the preacher is going to preach on joy, that there's going to be opportunities through the course of the week for him to have his joy stolen from him. All right? So yesterday morning, getting ready for the sermon, been working on it through the course of the week. We had uh, friends really closer to being family that were coming in to see us, and they, they got in yesterday afternoon. And so Teresa and I were trying to, you know, last-minute stuff to get ready for people coming to the house, and, you know, you got to clean stuff and all. So, uh, um so I get up, and I'm doing some stuff around the house, and, and I knew that uh, I needed, my bank statement had come in, and I knew I needed to reconcile my bank account. And so I go sit down to do that, and I bring up uh, my online banking, and first thing in the morning, what time, 9 o'clock? I don't remember what time it was. It was 8.30, so I don't know. Way too early to be looking at a bank account online and finding fraud charges on your account. Three different charges that had happened the day before, and all of them on my account. Okay, now it's her fault. I just want you to know. The bank clarified that. No, actually, somebody stole her card number. All right, so I I just, you got to know who you got here, right? So this is a struggle for me, just like it's a struggle for other people. So I woke up and I was doing okay, right? And if joy is a state of happiness, my state went south right there. And so it took me four hours yesterday dealing with the bank on those fraudulent charges. Okay, I was not happy. Was I joyful? Well, I was getting ready to preach. My wife just said no. (laughs) So I'm I'm not real crazy about the definitions that they're given to us here uh, from Merriam-Webster. So let me go to one of my old-time favorite preachers years ago. Uh, I used to really like to listen to Chuck Swindoll. And here's what he says, and I think he nails it. Okay? I think he gives us a working definition for what joy is that allows us then to take the steps to say, okay, so how do we get there? 
Here's what he says. First of all, joy is a choice. Let me just stop there and let's let that settle in really well. Because many of us are tempted to live our lives totally in reaction mode. And so something happens and it makes me sad or it makes me mad. Nobody, no situation has the ability to make you not be joyful. It is a choice. And I know that there would be people who go, well, you don't understand. If you knew the circumstances of my life, you would not say that. Yes, I would. Because joy is a choice. And, as we've already seen, it is a fruit of the presence of God in your life. And unless you want to put God at the mercy of the circumstances of your life, uh, then you can't say that joy is not possible because you've got bad circumstances. We'll come back to that in a second. Let's keep going. He says, joy is a choice. It is a matter of attitude that stems from one's confidence in God. Now, I'm going to add more. He said more than that. I didn't put it all on the slide. So let me give you the rest of his statement. It is a matter of attitude that stems from one's confidence in God, that he is at work, that he is in the midst of whatever has happening, uh, has happened, is happening, and will happen. In other words, I think Swindoll gets this straight up for us, and that is that we make the choice about joy. And it is this attitude that we have. It's not emotional. It's not circumstantial. It is a deep, abiding condition of our heart based on our confidence in God. That helps us to understand some of the Christmas carols that we have. And if, if we were to take the time, and I don't want to take the time here, but you go back and do that. Well, how many, what are some of the Christmas carols that we sing in churches? Joy to the world, right? How's the next phrase go? What's the basis of joy in that one line of that Christmas carol? It's the confidence that God has not left his people. The Lord has come. We can work our way through a number of them. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. There's all kinds of statements in there. We could just walk through in these different Christmas hymns that we have that throw the word joy in there. It's almost always tied to the fulfillment of God's promises. So with that in mind, and a biblical point of reference for us, let me just give you a couple of quick statements here, and then we'll move to what do you do to, to have it in your life and, and those kind of things. First of all, joy is a byproduct of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you work up. It is something that God does and provides. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is a fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have fruit trees at your house. You get fruit from them, but you only get the kind of fruit off the tree or the kind of tree that it is. And so one of the fruits that we get by God indwelling us is joy, just like peace we talked about last week. So that, let me just stop and say, if you don't have joy in your life, either you don't have God in your life or you're not at the point where you could be. That leads me to the second one, and that is that God promises, or God's promises lay the foundation for joy for us. God said, Isaiah, that we looked at last week, remember that? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government should be upon his shoulder, and, all, and his name shall be called. And we went through all those different past, uh, uh, statements of who the Messiah would be. 
That's a promise from God. So when the angels show up on the hillside and say, joy to the world, it's tied to the fulfillment of the promise that God has already made. If you lack joy in your life, I would say dig into the promises of God. Those ones, for instance, that say, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you happen to be underneath the circumstances of your life and things are not going all that well for you and you're just not all that joyful this holiday season, then just dig in to the promises of God. All of those hymns, all of those things draw us back to this truth. Despite the circumstances of your life, God's promises give joy a foothold. So with that in mind, let's look at uh, getting there. Are you Scrooge? If you could just strip away all the other stuff and deal with the fundamental question, if joy is a byproduct of Christmas and the coming Christ, do I have Christmas? I mean, do I have joy? Is Christmas mattering to me? Is it making a difference in my life? I think that it's easy to get underneath the circumstances of life and joy gets choked out. Part of that time in traffic that I was referring to earlier, Teresa and I were together and we were talking about a number of things. And, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm an idiot and I say stuff crazy all the time. And I said something and she started laughing and it pushed us into some discussion about this. You know, there was a, a stretch of our lives where there was really no joy at all. Well, it, wasn't that it, it wasn't that it was not there. It's just that it got choked out. And so in that discussion, and the ability to laugh is a good thing, and it joy, kind of bubbles up from this joyous, joyous attitude. Um, in the midst of that, I, I, this reflection hit the, hit the discussion for us. It's easy to choke out joy. It's easier to choke it out than it is to embrace it. And part of that's because of this, this situational focus that we tend to get. So five quick things. If you lack joy in your life, here's what I would suggest. Here's the first one. Cultivate the environment in which joy thrives. In other words, you do your part while God's doing his part. Teresa has some plants that are in these pots that are on. No, they're not pot plants. They're, pot, they're plants that are in pots on our front porch. And uh, it's kind of one of those things that is her project, not mine. Okay, I don't do the whole green thumb. I hate, hate working in the yard, all of those kind of things. And so that's her deal. And so she does that. And so I watch her as she babies those plants. Now, if it was me, I would, first of all, I wouldn't deal with it. But I, if, if I have to deal with a plant, I would just plant it and then walk away. And the survival of the fittest, okay, if you can make it, knock yourself out. That's me, right? She didn't feel that way about her plants. That's good. I love that about her. And so she pours herself into making these things thrive. 
And so that means a number of things. Like, for, instance, for me, again, I'm showing my ignorance. I get that. But, you know, dirt's dirt. Just throw some dirt in there and plant it. But I, I understand. She went to some person who knows dirt, and they said, no, you have to have this expensive dirt. We have this dirt. Now, don't worry about what you're standing on. This dirt we put in a bag because it's good dirt. And so she dirties up the pot, right, to put these plants in. All right, so she puts the plants in this expensive dirt, and then she pours water to it. And she moves them so that they get the right amount of sunlight. And matter of fact, I, I didn't know this, but you got to put the right kind of plant in the kind of sunlight that you get. Who knew? She cultivates the environment so that those plants can thrive. That makes sense? Yeah, you know, we do that all the time with stuff in our yard and all that kind of deal. That's, that's smart if you're going to have plants like that. But the same is true in our daily lives as it relates to joy. It is a Holy Spirit fruit. You can't work it up. But you can get the environment right and the soil of your life right so that he has the opportunity to create things in you that, that if you're resistant to him, he can't do or won't do. You cultivate the environment of your life for joy. That doesn't mean that you try to push away all of the uh, the negative stuff, you know, you try to just you set your mind straight. Well, I'm going to I'm going to be joyous, and this is what I got to do. It's just cultivating the environment. It's 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 spending time in the relationship, in the fellowship that you have with God through Christ in the Holy Spirit. It's it's positioning yourself so that you grow in your faith. It's giving the Holy Spirit room to work in your life. That's the first one. Here's the second thing you do. Submit to him. It's not enough just to say, okay, I'm going to get all the pieces, right? I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. Those are all pieces, and those are all probably really important for this. But ultimately, it comes down to overcoming the biggest problem you have. And it's the biggest problem I have, and it is this. We all want to be in control. The essence of sin when you boil it all down is I will be in control. I will call the shots. I will be God in my universe. But the problem is you can't be, and I certainly can't be. And so what has to happen for us is for us to come to the Holy Spirit and say, you know what, I can't do this. I can't be in charge of my life and make good decisions out of that. So I come and I submit to your authority in me. That's part of the cultivating, but the cultivating opens the door for you to step into that and go, okay, the pieces are in place. I just have to step back. And that's hard for us to do. But that opens the door for him to be able to create in us that joyous attitude that is deep down regardless of what's going on around us. So here's the the third one now. First was cultivate the environment in which joy thrives. Second is submit to the Holy Spirit. Now, the third one is maintain the proper perspective. And this is that part of the situational focus that kills us. The old saying is, hey, how you doing? The guy responds and says, well, under the circumstances, I'm okay. What's the next line? What are you doing under the circumstances? As a Christian, you should never be under 
the circumstances of your life. If God is God, and he is, if God is God, not a thing that comes at you in life is outside of God's oversight. That means if you believe that he loves you, and he does, that means that if you're encountering it in your life, God is somewhere in it. So what we need then is the perspective because the situational focus of our lives has a way of stealing our joy away. The doctor's report, fraud in your bank account, relationship issues, all of those kind of things have a way of just reaching and snatching our joy. Joy is easier to squelch than it is to feed. And so what it causes us to do is to fall before God through the Holy Spirit in our lives and say, okay, I don't want to be in charge of this. I need your perspective on this. Help me see you in this. Which leads me then to the next one, which is you got to get God's specific promise for you in your situation. I'm going to take you back with this, and this is going to make you think I'm a little bit nuts, and that's okay. Probably I am a little bit nuts, maybe a lot. Um, but part of the progress or the progression of my life in ministry uh, took me to a point where I was in a church, and our pastor uh, pulled me aside and said, hey, I just want you to know that I'm getting ready to resign. I'm going to retire. I'm going to give X number of uh, months notice to the church, but I'm going to do that, and uh, I, w- I think it's important that you know that ahead of time so you can figure out what you're going to do. I was the assistant pastor there, and uh, there was going to be some who were going to ask me to become the senior pastor, and I just, he gave me a heads up on it. And so, in the process of dealing with that, uh, Teresa and I sat down, we started thinking about it, praying about it, okay, God, what are you going to do? And things were going really well as far as we were concerned. It, you know, it wasn't that there was a need to leave or anything like that, but uh, because that pastor was my father, uh, the previous pastor's son being second. It just either I was going to have to, you know, consider being pastor, or I was going to have to go to another church. And so I just couldn't figure it out. And so I kept asking God, "What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do?" And we talked about it. We prayed about it together. And so finally, uh, I got a clear message from God. And if you're one of those that doesn't believe that God speaks directly to you, then um, you're not going to like this because he spoke directly to me. And I knew without a doubt that's what he had said. I, I, you will become pastor of this church. And uh, not this one. That's back down in the valley. And so uh, I didn't like that message. I didn't like that promise. That's not what I was wanting to hear, honestly. And so I started asking God, okay, so... I need some clarification. I need to make sure this is the case. And it took me to a passage of Scripture, a very clear statement. In the book of Acts, you'll, when we get to it, I'll talk about it in a little bit at that point, but a very clear message from God that I was going to be the next pastor of that church according to his plan. And so I was to follow through with that path. And, uh, and yet there was a message attached to that that colored what would happen beyond that. And I got a little nervous about it, and God said it this way. I want you to become pastor of that church, and I'm going to blow the doors off of that church. Now, I don't know what that means. By the way, that doesn't, that's not necessarily a good word there. Okay? Explosions cause doors to blow off of buildings. So, 
Um, I wasn't sure what all of that meant until I went back to God and going, okay, I don't know what to do. And my joy was becoming dependent on the situation. And now I didn't have any because I couldn't figure out where God was in it. Or when I started figuring out where God was in it, I didn't necessarily like that. And so one day I, I just went to the Lord. I said, look, I don't want to be disobedient to you. I want to do what you want me to do, but I need to know this. I need to know this, not just me wanting this or not wanting it. I need clarification that this is what you said. That day at church, one of my friends there pulled me aside, and he said, I don't really know where all of this is coming from, but I want you to know God instructed me to come tell you this. You're going to be the next pastor of this church, and he's going to blow the doors off of that church. There's no way in the world that guy could have known what God was dealing with me on the inside and those private conversations I was having with him. Here's what I want you to hear from that. When God has a specific message for you, he can get it to you. But if you're not cultivating the environment so that you can hear that, and if you're choking out the Holy Spirit in other parts of your life and you can't hear what he has to say, it's not that he can't speak. It's just that you're not listening. When you do listen and he gives you those promises. By the way, one of the promises he gave me that tied to that, to blow the doors off, was here's a passage of scripture. This is going to be a fight. And so as you go into this and you fight the battles that are ahead of you, here's the way I want you to fight it. That's not the way to start off for a pastor in his head about how to start a church. But you see, that played out exactly like that, a series of battles, but there was joy in it all the way. You know why? Because I could go back to the specific promise of God. I'm at work in this. Don't leave me, and I won't leave you. See, the key to joy is in that attitude, that internal part of you that the Holy Spirit just kind of fans in spite of the circumstances around you. The key to joy is recognizing that God is still God. The reason that message on a hillside to a bunch of shepherds we saw in verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, the reason it carried weight with them is because the promise had been made. Now God was following through with it. So you maintain the proper perspective and you get God's specific word for your situation. Which leads me to the last one, which is, once you get that, the way you get to joy is you just settle in and you grow up. That's not to say that you're not grown already. It just means there's always room to grow. And the way you grow is you take God's word for you and you hold on to it and you let him fan the flames of joy for you. I feel relatively sure that the reason so many people think Christians don't know how to have a good time is because they don't see very many Christians where joy is real. So are you Scrooge? Where's your joy? Merry Christmas. Let's pray. So, Father, again, we see that Christmas does make a difference. And you have come and modeled the joy-filled life for us. And you put your spirit in us, which creates the opportunity for us to live in joy.
Father, I know that we have a lot of, a lot of hurt in life. People in this room living through some rough circumstances. And it may well be that the enemy has stolen their joy away. So my prayer for them right now is that you would show yourself to be very real and very present and very vocal. You'd show them precisely the area in their life that they need to submit to you. We pray that this would be a moment of restored joy for all of us here. So we ask you to have freedom to work in us, change lives. Father, for those who don't know Jesus at all, we pray that you would impress on them right now the need for you, you, the, the relationship that Christ brings, and that they would step into that relationship today. Father, we pray for those who are not sure what to do with this, but they know they need to do something. We pray for clarity that Spirit would whisper over their shoulder into their ear, this is the way walk here. For those who are not sure what to do with this, we just pray that you'd show yourself to be God. Whatever decisions need to be made, Father, we pray that you would impress it on people if they need to come, whether it's to join the church or anything else. We pray that you would show them now and that this would be a time of joy for them. In Jesus' name, amen.